knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. First safari to Africa and hunting for food on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. Hello, everyone. Once again, we have questions and answers. I don't know if we have any corrections today. I haven't seen them yet. But the team tells me that someone is asking about what to take on their first South African safari, I guess. And someone else wants to get into hunting and they want to know, uh, I guess, what's involved? What do you need to buy? How do you find your food? So We're going to go back to the land here and hunt for our food. So the questions today come from, first of all, someone called No Name. Hi, Ron. I'm going on my first South Africa safari hunt in two years, and I'm debating to buy a new rifle. I currently hunt deer in South Texas with my 30 6 that my dad gave me when I was 15 years old, and I'm now 53. Oh, boy. I see this one coming already. I think a 300 would do, but I'm not sure which one. Any recommendations? Boy, no name. I do have a recommendation. Take that 30 6 your dad gave you. Oh, my goodness. What an opportunity. What could be more special than to do your first safari with the rifle you've had since you were 15? Because a 30 6 is a 300. <laughs> it, it has done and can do everything and anything you need it to in Africa. Oh, man. A Plains Game Safari. I would definitely take that rifle. Not only is it a beautiful cartridge and uh, has the right size of bullets, but you know how to shoot it. This is your rifle. This is your baby. You are going to be so comfortable. And listen, when you get to South Africa, there are going to be enough novelties and new things spinning your head that you don't need to be thinking about. Now, wait a minute. What does this new rifle do for drops and drifts at this distance and all the rest of that? Man, just take the easy route and use your 30 x <laughs> Now, there are a lot of ammo and rifle companies are going to be slapping me upside the head for not telling you to get at least two new rifles. <laughs> That's the whole idea for selling more product. But come on, let's be real. You can't beat a 30 6 and especially not one that your dad gave you that you've been hunting with all this time. Go with what you know. On your next safari, you can play around with some fancy new cartridges and rifles if you'd like to. That's my recommendation. This is Anthony, and he asks, for bolt hunting rifles and other long arms, do you have a favorite brand and model of sniper scope for precision shooting? Oh, that, that threw me a loop. I thought he was going to ask my favorite rifle brand. Now he's into sniper scopes. Okay. Well, so it doesn't really matter about the rifle. It's the scope that's doing all the work here. 
And what you're going to deal with with sniper scopes is precision and repeatable precision if you're going to be turret dialing. And that's what most guys seem to prefer. You get two options, really, and you can actually combine the two, but let's just simplify it. Option one, turret dialing. What you're doing is you're moving the reticle picture inside of the scope in relation to your target to give you holdover, what amounts to holdover, um, to reach longer targets while still keeping the crosshair on target. So you're always aiming dead center on target, which a lot of people like. It just makes sense. Um, but you've dialed the corrections into the scope. And it can be pretty quick too. You know, some scopes on their turrets will allow you to have a custom tour in which you'll have markings of 300 yards, 350 yards, 400 yards, 450 yards on out. You just dial to that number and that matches up to the yardage. And in between those numbers will probably be little hash marks that represent a quarter minute of angle adjustment or something. So it can be pretty simple that way. The other way to do it is with MOAs, and that's the minute of angle markings on the scope. And those are usually four. And then you've got one MOA. That's one inch at 100 yards, two inches at 200 yards, three inches at 300 yards, all the way out. Makes it pretty easy for most of us to understand. So you can go to one MOA, to two, to three. You just work your way up. And if you have a ballistics chart, a trajectory chart, instead of having it in inches of drop, you have it in minutes of angle of drop. You just say, well, at 500 yards, I need six minutes of angle. You just dial to six. There's your 500 yard shot. Pretty nice. Um, and then you can get the mill radian system. That's a little more coarse than the MOA, but it's the same idea. You just, it 3.6 inches of subtension or drop at 100 yards, 36 inches at 1,000 yards, three feet at 1,000 yards. So it's not as finely tuned as the MOA scale. Uh, the military uses this a lot. Once again, once you get used to it, instead of thinking in inches, you just think of mill radians, you get your ballistic chart down and you realize that you have to dial X number of mills at 600 yards, at 400 yards, whatever you're doing. So it get, gets to be really quick if you practice it a while and get used to it. But a lot of guys don't like to reach up and turn dials and look at numbers. They want to stay in the scope and watch the target, especially if it's an animated target. So if you're thinking that route, you're going to look for a multiple reticle type where you got extra hash marks or cross marks down that you use for aiming points. So you can get these cut, they're laser cut uh, inside of the scope and they can be same thing, minute of angle or mill radian. And the same deal, you could put say a, a four by four MOA down or a five and then jump to the 10, or you can have each one of them numbered. How confusing do you want to get? Some guys get really mixed up and confused on this. So you really have to be careful when you're selecting one of these radicals so that it is easily understood without covering up a lot of the target. Some guys just don't like to see all these different lines and numbers. They call it a Christmas tree. It gets really confusing. But I kind of like a combination of both. Um, and I'm starting to work a little more with mill radians. I never used to like it, but I'm starting to understand and appreciate it a bit more. And I'm thinking if one went with a mill radian system and a combination of dialing and using reticles, you can reach out a lot farther. We did this recently and got out to a mile, which is really that's a lot of drop and a bullet at a mile. You've got to throw that thing so high up in the air, you know, like 30 feet or so. So it's really pretty crazy.
So you want to look for those options and you have to really study that before you jump in. But then the other thing you want is real consistency and durability in that scope. You can't use a relatively inexpensive scope and expect it to be consistent and last, I don't think. It has to have really high quality parts, especially if you're doing the turret dialing. If you're not dialing, it's not quite as critical because there's no moving parts on that reticle. So you can pick your your sub reticles on down the line, but you can't generally get out more than around 700, maybe 800 yards with most bullets. They'll drop below what you can hold over inside of that scope without moving and dialing. So as far as brands, there are a lot of great ones out there. And again, a lot of scope brands will make an inexpensive scope for folks who don't want to drop a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars on a scope. Um, and then there are the ones that just pull out all the stops and build the highest quality they can and they get really heavy, but they're durable and they really work. So you might have to spend a heck of a lot of money to get one. So yeah, you're cut out to do a lot of research here. Um, generally you're going to stick with a 30 millimeter main tube scope. The one inchers, they're fine optically, but you can't get the dialing if you're going to be doing any turret dialing. It's a smaller area inside there to move your erector tube up and down and around. So you're not going to be able to move it as far. Oh, speaking of moving your erector tube around, I forgot about the horizontal for wind deflection. That becomes a big issue with sniper style shooting at long range. You've got to compensate for wind deflection. So some will have the turret dialing for windage as well as elevation. My, I think most sniper types using these target rifle scope deals now don't like that dialing system because you have to keep coming back and you want to forget about it and then you're going to be off. They prefer to use hash marks, MOA or mill again on the horizontal line. So you have your horizontal line in your scope and on the left side and the right side, you've got a series of hash marks that correspond to wind deflection in minutes of angle or mill. Those work really quickly because if you measure the wind and realize for this shot you need to make now, you need two MOA of wind correction into the wind. You just pick that second line, move it into the into the wind, and there you go. So a uh, lot to think about, but durability and those two sighting systems are what you really want to be concerned about. Good question. A complicated answer, and that's not the complete answer, so do your research. All right. Caleb is asking, um, thanks for the good information on backpacks for moose hunting on your last episode and all the good info on the other stuff, of course. I'm heading on my first moose hunt in Newfoundland in October. I'm having a very difficult time choosing which rifle to bring. I have a 270 with which I have shot many critters and I'm intimately familiar with. Uh, also a 7 rem mag that was my favorite last year taking a black bear and an elk and an antelope and a mule deer and a great whitetail wow you had a heck of a year my friend congratulations and i also have a 358 winchester with a great trigger and a stainless barrel and the 335 whalen oh my gosh please help me break the tie he's got a four-way tie going here <laughs> well the good news here caleb is that you can't go wrong with any of them they're all going to work. The 270 has going for it the fact that you are intimately familiar with it, and it's more than enough to take a moose. All of these are. The 7 rem mag gives you the opportunity to reach a little bit farther, use a little bit heavier bullet. You could go with a 175 or a 160, 162. So you're going to have a little more energy on target. Again, I don't think you really need it on a moose. I've taken a goodly number of moose with some pretty light bullets, and it just seems to work if you put them in the right place. 
And But boy, it's not like you've taken a lot of animals with that 7-rem mag, so that could work well for you too. And both the 270 and 7-rem mag, if you lose your ammunition en route and you have to buy some in some town, they're likely to have it. Those are both pretty popular. A lot of those around. The 358 Winchester, not so much. You might not find ammunition for that or the 35 Whalen. The two, those two, of course, are giving you a wider diameter bullet. And a lot of guys like that for the bigger animals. Um, the 358 Winchester, boy, I would be tempted to take that one just because it doesn't get used that much. And uh, you, I don't know what your rifle is, but I would have one that would be pretty small and light. That's a short action. That's the 308 necked up to 35. So you've got a short action rifle. Could be pretty compact and handy. Not that I think you need it up in Newfoundland. I think you're looking at some tundra country. It's a mix of some small conifer trees, maybe some aspen types, and then open areas and bogs and whatnot. So I don't know if there's a huge advantage in having a short compact rifle, but it's something to consider. You might want to ask your outfitter up there. And then the 35 Wayland, real similar deal, except for instead of the short action 308 case, it's the 30-06 necked up to 35. So you got a little more punch with that one, maybe 100 to 200 feet per second more velocity out of it. And again, both of them will do the job on moose. So I don't think I helped you break the tie at all here. I probably told you something you already know. But yeah, that's a nice problem to have. I would consider taking two up there. Just because something goes wrong with one, you immediately have another one ready. You know, something breaks. The other option is to, of course, take a, a spare scope along. And I do this most of my trips where I'm going pretty far out. Even the, the fly-in backpack type trips. I will bring along a pre-sighted uh, scope for that rifle in quick release rings. So I'll have the, the standard scope that's on the rifle that I hope to be using the whole time. And that will be in quick release rings. I'll have another scope set up with quick release rings. That's also zeroed for that rifle. And usually those quick detach and removable ring sets will clamp onto that rifle and be dead on. Sometimes you have to adjust it an inch or something. But boy, you can be ready to roll in a hurry with that system if something breaks. All right. Yeah, good luck on that one. And hey, let us know how you do. Send us a picture of that big moose. Maybe send us some steaks too while you're at it. I'll take the tenderloins. <laughs> hey, you guys are the pulse of this channel. You make it all possible. And a great way to support this channel is through Patreon. If you become a Ron Spomer Outdoors Patreon on Patreon, you're helping us to produce this video and others like it. And if you join Patreon, you get a few benefits like early access to my videos. Uh, I can answer some of your questions. I offer consultation services. And there are several categories at which you can join up. And you can pay as little or as much as you'd like each month. So check things out. All right, this is Ben. Ben asks, if you were going to start a gun collection of only American-made rifles in American calibers, and that's narrowing it down, nice collection. And American-made shotguns, what would be your top, top priorities? Oh, boy. You know, some of the most valuable uh, and appreciated American rifles for collectors seem to be the early Winchesters, lever actions. And then, well, you didn't mention handguns, but I'd go with Colts on those. Then shotguns. Boy, American shotguns just don't have the cachet and the reputation of the Continental shotguns. And the British shotguns. Brits were kind of the top of the heap with really, really finely balanced, beautifully made shotguns. Americans were always more, 
we were more mechanically inclined pump actions, auto loaders. We just didn't go in for the high end stuff because pretty much because of our culture, you know, we were middle-class Americans where everyone was pretty much equal. We didn't have this upper class that could afford to get custom built rifles that were really expensive. So we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it and different gun makers didn't spend a lot of time building them because most of their buyers were average Joes and Janes who just wanted a good functional rifle because we spent most of our time out roughing it up and getting our birds for the dinner table. We weren't out there to show off a fancy gun. <laughs> so the early only fancy one I can think of would be Winchester 21, a pretty heavy, stout, well-built. Many consider it one of the best, if not the best, side-by-side doubles made in the US of A. But then you've got this, the the functional and still pretty darnly nicely balanced and built, ruggedly built Parker's and L.C. Smith's. What's another one? Oh, gummy. I'm I'm blanking here. But some of the turn of the century side-by-side double shotguns were would be where I would start looking. Gosh, I can't remember why I can't think of the L.C. Smith and Parker's are jumping out at me. But there are a couple more in that era. It was the the late 1800s, 1890s into about 1930. And that's when things really started to change into the more utilitarian pumps and uh, autoloaders. But there was a period of about three to four decades when American-made side-by-side doubles were really just well-built, not as fine as the British, but darn good shotguns. And they're bringing a pretty premium price right now. And I apologize for not remembering the other one or two top end brands. I haven't looked into them for quite some time now, but they are some pretty interesting pieces. And I think that's where your most value is going to lie right now. Um, Beyond that, I'm thinking Marlins are pretty collectible too on the rifle end. They're becoming a lot more popular. And the the 39A, the 22 lever actions, all by themselves have a quite a category because so many different ones were made, different styles and whatnot. And then you can always get into something fairly easily collected and inexpensive like the 22s because 22 rimfires were so popular and there were so different, many of them made by so many brands. You can get into the Savages and the Stevens and the Winchesters and the Remingtons and the Marlins and the Mossbergs and... Everyone seemed to make a 22, and it would be fun to have a collection of not just the different brands, but the different types, the brake actions and the lever actions. And I don't know if there's maybe not even a falling block out there somewhere. Um, lots of auto loaders and fairly inexpensive to collect, too. So that could be a lot of fun. I would probably start right there myself. But other than that, the Winchesters are always, always a good, a good bet. And then a lot of the Remingtons too. You know, Remington wasn't quite as well known as a collector piece back in those days, but they had some pretty interesting rifles and the rolling blocks in the 1800s were pretty interesting. That was one of the more popular black powder guns out in the Buffalo country back in the 1870s through 90s. So then there's, oh, I don't even want to get into it. The Ballard long range target rifles. There's, geez, there's so many places you can go with this set. I don't know, Ben, you're going to have fun with it, but there's plenty of options out there. Good luck and send us uh, some photos of what you collect. I'm guessing you're going to find some pretty interesting rifles. 
Okay, Kendrick. Kendrick's asking, hunt honest, shoot straight. That's a great slogan. Would you share why you chose it and the rules you live by? Ah, I'm going to get into a little philosophy here, huh? <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Kendrick. I appreciate you noticing it, too. Uh, a lot of folks have. It's kind of unusual. And the straight story is that it just popped into my head one day. Years ago, when we were just getting going on these videos, I don't know why, but I just, at the end of one, said, see you next time, hunt honest and shoot straight. Something along that line. It just popped into my head. And as I thought about it more and more, when people would comment on it and say, I like that. And I thought, you know, I like it too. Where did it come from? And I think it just came from my life, you know, growing up and doing what I do and learning as we all do as we get older, the importance of being honest and shooting straight, you know, not trying to take advantage of anyone, not cheating or shortchanging anything. Just seems like a good philosophy to live by. And I think it really applies to what we do because of the responsibility that comes with being a gun owner and user, and especially a hunter, which I mainly am. That's why I am interested in guns because of the hunting end of it. So I think we it behooves us in our hunting heritage and our, well, our gun rights, our Second Amendment rights to keep and use firearms, to be responsible, to do it honestly, and to shoot straight at all times. Not just with others and with the equipment we use and follow the usual rules and laws and all that, but our own sense of ethics and what's right and wrong. And I don't think I need a lot more explanation than that. All of us pretty much know what's right and wrong. How does that apply to our shooting? How does it apply to our dealings with others in the field when we're hunting at the target ranges, both for safety reasons and just to be polite and fair to others? That's kind of where I came from. I wasn't thinking that deeply when I came up with it. You know, this is only in retrospective here when I think about it now. I just think it does. It's not grammatically correct, by the way, which is kind of a problem for me because I used to teach English and I kind of dote on getting grammar correct. But um, it still smacks of an honest and memorable, I guess, memorable little saying folks. So hunt honestly and shoot straight is how it should be. But by golly, I think you get the drift and that's where it came from. So thanks for the question. Hunt honestly, shoot straight. Now this is Farmer Wayne and I think he's going to shoot straight. Let's just see. For your beloved 308, <laughs> what bullet? He's joking here because I don't love the 308. For your beloved 308, what bullet type manufacturer, weight, etc. for a hand load would you suggest for deer? I've been looking at Sierra, Burger, and Hornady. All right. All great bullets. Three different bullet manufacturers. They've got a lot to pick from. Hand loads. Well, first of all, in a 308, I think 150 grain to 165 grain bullet weight is about optimum. Not so heavy that it's really starting to slow down, but long and heavy enough to be long enough to start to get some pretty high ballistic coefficients and ballistic coefficient. Don't let it freak you out. It's a, just a number that tells you how efficiently the bullet can move through the air without being slowed down by drag. So it's aerodynamic efficiency. A lot of people now are getting sick of all this BC stuff because of the long range shooters harping on it, but it really is a big deal beyond 300 yards. But it's even important inside of 300 yards because if you go with just say a typical spire point, a boat tail or even a flat base, but a spire point in a 308 versus a round nose in a 308, 
of the same weight, there's a huge difference in the trajectory, even at 300 yards. So you do want to watch for that. But you're just kind of asking what a hand load would be. And, you know, really, you've got to go to the hand load manuals to find out what looks like a a well-balanced setup where you don't have too fast of a powder for the bullet or too slow. And then you get good efficiency. Some of the manuals now will will list efficiency. Like we've loaded 90% powder capacity in this case is what this powder is taking up. And some will go to 100%. Some will go a little more than that. 101%? How do you do that? Well, you crush the powder. It's crush load. But as you get up there towards 100 you get more efficient in burning the powder and getting full efficiency out of driving the bullet down range. And then it's up to the bullet after that. So I would select my bullet first based on its need. You're going to use it for deer hunting. What's going to do to the deer? Do you want a bullet that expands rather quickly and violently for a lot of tissue damage, but probably not shooting all the way through so you don't have as long of a wound, but it it happens quickly inside and it's a large area, almost like a, a varmint bullet that generally explodes into an area about like this. Does a lot of tissue destruction right there, but it doesn't go all the way through, so you might not catch the second lung. So I kind of like to shoot through bullets. So then you're talking about a controlled expansion bullet. Um, now the 308 is not driving them all that fast, so you don't have to have that hard of a bullet. But any of the control expansions from, say, the Nosler Partition on up to the, well, the Hornady has the interlock, but then even harder would, or staying in, in one piece a little better would be the um, interbond. And that's a bonded bullet where the jacket is bonded to the lead core so they can't break apart mechanically. Any of the other bonded bullets, I'm not sure what Sierra has, if anything, in a bonded bullet. Um, Hornady Burger. Burgers are not bonded. They're more likely to break up inside. And a lot of folks like that because you get that shrapnel effect in the heart and the lungs and it works pretty darn well. Sierra is just famous for accuracy and long range accuracy. So yeah, you're just going to have to make up your own mind on that. Personally, I've used all three. I probably used more Hornady than anything else, then Sierra and then Berger. But any of those will work and just depends on if your rifle likes them. Most 308s will shoot most bullets pretty darn accurately. So I wouldn't freak out about that either. So yeah, sorry I couldn't be nailing it down a little more tighter for you on that one. But those are the things that we all have to think about when we're hand loading. You've got to consider the bullet and the velocity and the weight and the shape and the BC and all the rest of it. And that's part of the fun too. You know, it makes it a little harder, but it gives us a hobby. It gives us something to, to play around with. And it's always fun to discover the perfect load and the perfect bullet. So have fun with it and good luck. This is Salesman. Uh, Salesman asks, I've never hunted, but I want to start hunting for food. Ah, this is where the food question comes in. I don't know anything past getting my permit and getting a rifle ready. So where do you suggest a new hunter start in their hunting education? Strikes me that I answered this kind of a question once before. Maybe I'm dreaming, but it's a good question at any rate. And it's worth answering again. Where do you get started? with your hunting education, books. I really, really advocate for books. Magazines were big in my day, and so were books. We didn't have the internet, obviously. That's going to be my last pick, by the way. But books have been vetted and edited and picked over. And the ones that are still selling, still on the market, like how to hunt deer and all this good stuff, you can pretty much depend on the information in there. Now, some of it might be contradictory. 
I've seen that where one guy recommends this and another guy recommends pretty much the opposite. They both can work. They just have different approaches. So you have to read it with a, with a grain of salt, let's say. But generally, there's good information in the books. The magazine articles are usually pretty trusty, trustworthy for similar reasons. There's editors at these magazines, and they're not just buying material from anybody off the street. They kind of check guys out or gals out and make sure they know what they're talking about. But I have noticed in recent years, this is getting a little bit fuzzier than it used to be. Because there's so many magazines, or there were for a while there. The heyday was the 80s and 90s, and then they started to fall by the wayside. But there were so many of them, and they all needed copy. And they would hire somebody who was kind of new to the game, maybe didn't know all that much. But they had to come up with somebody to write this stuff. So you might not get a straight scoop from some of those. Also, some of the editors were good at maybe editing, but not so good at knowing what they were editing. So they might screw things up about ballistics and numbers on cartridges and chambering and all that kind of stuff. So a little bit of a hazard there. So also a grain of salt on that one. Now, you need a whole shaker of salt when you do it on the Internet because nobody's vetting that stuff. It could be anybody off the top of his head saying, I tell you all you need to know about and it get it all wrong. I have seen some absolutely dead wrong information on there that could potentially get somebody hurt. So you've got to really be careful on the Internet. So where does that leave you? In the lurch? <laughs> well, I could recommend you uh, listen to me, <laughs> but there's always the possibility that I screw up too. I try to play it straight and tell you what I know and admit it when I don't know. So I, I can't remember when I gave bad information. Sometimes I will miss something, a sin of omission. But I'm not going to tell you to go out and say, mix three different powders to drive your bullets faster in your 30 out six and you'll be fine. I'm not going to tell you something like that. But there are plenty of good, solid, dependable sites on the Internet. You just have to figure out which ones those are. So what's your alternative? Number one, a mentor. Some man or woman who really does know their stuff and has proven it over time, either by shooting, winning shooting competitions or successfully hunting a lot on their own. You know, there are a lot of hunters who will go out with a guide who does all the hunting stuff and they just pull the trigger. You know, they gradually learn a few things as they go, but they don't necessarily have to know how to find an animal and outwit it. Uh, so you might not get any benefit there. But then again, there's the do-it-yourselfers who could, I always say, <laughs> I know one guy, he was an outfitter or a, a guide who worked for an outfitter. And he had been raised by parents who were, well, let's go back to the 60s. Essentially, they were hippies who fled to the North Country to live off the land. That was the big dream back then. But these people pulled it off. They built their own cabin and raised their own vegetables and shot their game for meat and raised kids out there. And they had to learn how to live off the land and hunt and read sign. And it was the old school stuff. It was like a mountain man in the 21st century. This kid was so good. I always said, you could Parachute him out of an airplane, stark naked, up in the North Country, and he would emerge a month later fully clothed and 10 pounds heavier. <laughs> that kind of skill and information is hard to come by. Tell you, half the fun here is figuring it out for yourself. 
You know, it's a little bit harder to do it, you know, the school of hard knocks, but boy, get out to the range and shoot your rifle a lot and figure out what's going on. Sure, you're going to compare this to the ballistic data and all the rest of it, but sure helps to have done it a lot. And then get out in the woods, start snooping around, look for tracks and droppings, find out about antler rubs on trees and scrapes in the ground and all of that stuff. You've just got to get out and immerse yourself in it. And that's half the fun, if not all of it. (laughs) So, hey, wishing you good luck there, salesman. And if you get around here and you happen to bump into me, I'm more than happy to give you some information, whatever I've learned. And not going to tell you where to find me, though. That's a little bit above my pay grade right now. (laughs) Well, that looks like all of our questions today, folks. Those are some good ones. I really appreciate that, guys. You are coming up with some some really good, useful questions here. I hope some of my answers helped you out. And until next time, and more questions come over the transom here, this is Ron Spomer at Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. I appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you again next time. Hanatis and shoot straight. fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.